0: have ever been spoken Then uh, walking up here not knowing what I was going to say feels awfully scary. (laughs) Um, I have had the opposite problem today. I have known too many things I wanted to say. I have my preaching professor stuck in my head. Uh, My very first sermon for her was uh, she could find nothing of, of positive note to discuss. She had plenty of critiques, but one of them was she said, I think you were trying to preach three or four sermons at the same time, and I have Felt that urge this week to preach three or four sermons right now, and the TV in the back is dead, so there is no clock up there telling me how long we are going. Um, so I'm feeling a bit of uh, nerve there because it, it has all felt like really important stuff to talk about. It has felt like uh, in this season it would be easy to shortchange something that's essential to our life together. We're at a kind of change in our church calendar. Uh, Starting way back after Thanksgiving last year, we began Advent, and we began this season that really is about Jesus revealing himself to the world. It begins in Advent, really culminates uh, on Pentecost Sunday when the Spirit is first revealed to the the very beginnings of the church. And then uh, we pivot after Trinity Sunday to really the season of being the church and how Jesus is revealing himself through us to the world today. And so we're going we're gonna to pivot, and we're going to go to the epistles. We're going to go to the letters from the New Testament. Uh, specifically, we're going to Romans, and we're going to be there until September 24th. We're going to uh, kind of journey with Paul as he is writing to this particular church in this particular place. Romans uh, rightly gets a, a, a rap for being difficult. Um, it is definitely more theologically put together than some of the other epistles, you read maybe 1 Corinthians, and you can clearly home in on, like, here's the problem, here's the solution. You can read uh, the pastoral epistles to things like uh, from Paul to Timothy, and go, okay, Timothy's got this problem, and Paul is dealing with it. Romans uh, is weightier and uh, rhetorically more intense, and it's longer, and it's, um, it's venerated almost in many places, Uh, Romans uh, has a special place in the hearts of so many. Uh, John Wesley was reading Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans in the moment his heart was strangely warmed. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has been, uh, uh, is on record saying that he was reading Karl Barth's commentary on Romans when he began to get these convictions about how uh, the church in uh, Germany needed to respond in the face of Nazism. Um, Romans uh, is the thing that uh, nerdy PhD students want to write on, because it's the big one. And pastors don't often want to preach on it, because you need so much context. We are uh, jumping in today in our reading, which is in chapter 4, uh, which, if you hadn't done the math, means that we have skipped chapters 1, 2, and 3, and part of 4. It's kind of, it's kind of like if you just jumped into Harry Potter with book 3, uh, something is missing in the story, right? If you Uh, if you kind of jump in there. So I'm going to try to give you the context and not make it a whole separate sermon. I have been deeply shaped by Scott McKnight's work. He's a professor up uh, in Chicago, and he wrote this great book called Reading Revelation uh, Backwards. And so I'm I'm drawing deeply on some of his frameworks, but but to start with, uh, we have to understand what's going on for the church at Rome. Uh, The earliest Roman Christians were surely Jewish Christians, people who had been participants in the synagogue in Rome during the time of Jesus. At some point, somebody comes and uh, declares the good news of uh, Christ, and they are converted. They become Jewish Christians, ethnically Jewish, uh, Jewish in practice. They're probably still going to the synagogue. They're probably still thinking about the connections to the temple in Jerusalem uh, they are eating kosher. They're still circumcising their kids. This is the, uh, the nucleus of the early church in Rome. But as happens throughout the early ministry of the church, it begins to spread to Gentiles as well. We see in Acts where Paul will go first to the synagogues and then to the marketplace or then to wherever. And we get these Gentile Christians beginning to get excited about Jesus. Uh, we don't know exactly the moment this happens, but Claudius becomes emperor. Well, we do know the moment of that, sorry. We know Claudius becomes the emperor and uh, is, is pretty well kind of a weakling and looked down upon. And so in order to kind of get his bona fides, he decides, I'm gonna look like a really powerful emperor and I'm gonna banish these Jewish Christians, well, really just these Jews from Rome to show that I'm powerful and that I uh, am defending kind of the Greco-Roman pantheon of God. So he sends uh, the Jewish Christians and the Jews out of Rome, and they go to wherever for a bit of time. He eventually dies, and Nero becomes the next Caesar. Nero's gonna be really bad later on, but we're not there yet. At this moment, he's kinda like, okay. Uh, Nero comes, he lets the Jewish Christians come back in, and we find ourselves at the book of Romans and at a major problem. It's the only time the church has ever split over something, right? It's the only time there's ever been rival factions uh, about something happening in the church, but we find ourselves there. We have these Jewish Christians coming back in and finding that now they are outnumbered and outclassed. The Gentile Christians have stayed in Rome. They've built up their wealth. They have uh, kind of uh, achieved some political power. They have uh, kind of built their estates, and they have settled in to be... uh, good Romans, while also being good Christians. Uh, And then you have these these Jewish Christians coming back in who probably are like renting apartments and who are struggling to figure out how they're going to make it financially, who uh, wonder uh, how they're going to go through the next day, right? Uh, Scott McKnight calls these two groups the strong and the weak. We have the strong Gentile Christians and the weak Jewish Christians, Clear enough so far, right? Are we following me? Who are uh, are the Gentile Christians, the strong or the weak? Strong. And ipso facto, the Jewish Christians are the weak. Okay. That's like 200 pages in his book. So we're there. Uh, We have them now trying to figure out how to live together as the church. Uh, even at this point, they and Paul especially can recognize this need for unity amongst the Christians in Rome. That there shouldn't be two churches, as Kathy said, there should be one church, but yet they're functioning as two separate entities. And so Paul is writing uh, to kind of address this. And uh, he does it in a pretty uh, intense rhetorical way uh, that does include chapters 1 through 3, which we have skipped. Okay? Okay? So Paul is writing to a people in a place and as a pastor. We treat Romans as if it's a systematic theology full of timeless truths that we can just pluck out and name to be our theology. And instead, we have to read this no different, I mean, we should read it different, let me rephrase that. I was gonna say no different than my Friday emails, but it's the same heart. We should read Romans more intensely than my Friday emails. <laughs> See, you can get in trouble sometimes when you just they don't know what you're gonna say sometimes. The heart of the thing was the same, though. Paul didn't say, I'm going to sit down and write the be-all, end-all systematic theology. Instead, he said, I'm going to write to these people who are the children of God and are not getting along. The first three chapters uh, do a lot of the heavy lifting of Paul getting into the meat of his argument. And the question is, for these strong Gentile Christians, they're actually really new to faith. These are people who have come from uh, other religious backgrounds or no religious background, probably from participating in the emperor cult and the uh, worship of Greco-Roman gods. They've, they've got this very shallow religious base that doesn't uh, give good, to mix my metaphors, doesn't give you good soil for the roots to grab hold of. And so they're weak in their, uh, in their religious background. And then you have our weak Jewish Christians who are strong and their religious background. They are the heirs of Abraham. They are the ones whose lineage goes back to Moses. They're the ones who, standing on the promises of David, they're the ones who uh, can remember the great-great-grandma who was in exile. They are the ones who uh, kind of have, have the deep roots of Yahweh's story, and they have a lot of practice being Jewish, right? So they're Christians, they're the weak group, but they're strong in their background, Uh, But they're also ethnically Jewish. So what are the two things, uh, there's at least two things that they are for sure doing. Anybody want to make two guesses of what they're still requiring? Circumcision Circumcision and eat kosher. kosher. These uh, are the two things that are going to be mandatory in the minds of these Jewish Christians for anybody else to participate in the family of God. And so even though they are coming back in, living paycheck to paycheck, unsure of how their things are going to go, where they're going to live, how they're going to be, they know that uh, to be a good religious person following this God who was Yahweh, who has revealed himself in Jesus, we've got to eat kosher and we've got to get circumcised. And they're going to make sure the Gentile Christians know this. Can you see the source of conflict here? Uh, Chapters 1 through 3... Uh, Paul is trying uh, delicately while very forcefully to address the elephant in the room. Um, Hey, Gentiles, you don't have this religious background to draw upon. Hey, Jews, it's a new day. Um, This is oversimplistic, but this is the first three chapters. Y'all need to draw upon the wealth uh, that this group has to offer you, and you need to stop telling them that the only way they can love God is through... uh, following Torah law by behaving correctly, and he does this for th- th- three and a half chapters and gets us to today's text, okay? Is that enough, or do I need to go through chapters one through three verse by verse? I can do that. <laughs> Carla is shaking her head no, um, while also smiling and sort of shaking it, yeah, okay, we're not going to walk through those three and a half chapters, uh, but he is telling them, y'all have to go to the depths Y'all have to let go of these behaviors. And then he comes to this text today, this long diatribe about Abraham's faith. And the message here, uh, it draws upon a story from the Old Testament. And and Paul chooses a very particular story. If we're working backwards, we could have uh, seen the the end of Abraham's life and all the promises that were coming true. He could have gone back to where Abraham would would be willing to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, We could go back to the time when he does circumcise himself and his entire family. But Paul goes back even farther to Genesis 15. Jake, we got that on the screen, right? Gabe, we got that on the screen, right? Genesis 15, uh, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. One more slide. Uh, He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the text Paul chose to begin to try to, uh, to knit together the strong Gentile Christians and the weak Jewish Christians, to knit together those whose religious background is uh, pluralistic or non-existent, and those who would call all the way back to the foundations of uh, Judaism, and, and said, this is your story. And it's, it's, it's a story because Abraham did nothing except believe. Hey, y'all want to call back to Abraham, and you, want, you especially want to call back to Moses, but let's go to this moment, this moment where God promises to do all the hard work, and you just have to believe. And Abraham believed that God would do the impossible, and it was credited as righteousness. Paul is trying to reframe for these Christians that they're asking the wrong questions. And if you ask only the wrong questions, you always get the wrong answers. We need to be a people of right questions ourselves. The right question for them is, uh, who is doing the work of making people righteous? And the answer uh, for the Jewish Christians was, we are. We eat correctly. We uh, do this medical procedure to our sons. And and we're doing the right things to prove righteousness. And Paul says, let me point you backwards. Abraham had not offered up a sacrifice. Abraham had not eaten a bit of kosher. Abraham uh, had not yet been circumcised but he trusted God. Y'all need to do the same thing. He didn't say y'all. That's the new Chad Southern version. Um, actually, in the Greek, it does. we do have y'all in the Greek. Did you know this? In English, we only have a you, which can be both singular and plural, but there is probably our plural second-person pronoun in Greek probably is best translated as y'all. Yep. That's your free fact for the day. Um, He is telling them that uh, this is the moment that our question is not what can we do to earn our righteousness, but who can we trust in who has declared us righteous? And that sounds like a really easy thing, right? It sounds easy breezy to a bunch of uh, Christians hanging out in the 40509, worshiping Jesus as he's been revealed to us, but for them, this is the conflict of conflicts, the church split of church splits, the very question about the foundations of their faith. Do you have to become Jewish? Or maybe even more importantly, do you have to follow the Torah uh, to be one of Jesus' sons and daughters? And can you understand why the Jewish Christians feel so Uh, distraught about the answer to this question, the very foundations of their faith, the very thing that is generationally uh, kind of given to you as the way that you become God's people, it, it it does not matter anymore. Go eat a hot dog. Do not worry about circumcising your kids. If this is the thing you cling to, to find confidence that you are sons and daughters of the God Most High, can you imagine how disorienting it is for Paul to say the law has no bearing? Now, we're going to get into kind of down the road what Paul's got to say about the law, because, by the way, behavior does matter. uh, But the question they get wrong is they think behavior leads to righteousness instead of behavior flowing out of righteousness. If we start with the question, how do we become holy through our actions, we will never, ever get to the right place because we're asking the wrong question. If we, if we have to do the work to become God's holy people, let's close the door, save some money, and go to the next social club we can be part of because we will never get to the right place. For Abraham, it was to believe the impossible could happen. For us, it's to believe that the triune God who has revealed himself to us uh, is there and is faithful to who he says he is. We have the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have uh, witness to his life, death, and resurrection. We have the Spirit testifying to us that through God's faithfulness, we are sons and daughters of the God Most High. And yet so often we ask the wrong question. What behaviors do we have to do? And this can be uh, prohibitive behaviors about things that are bad or things that we think are good that we have to do to try to earn God's love. Do you know how many youth group messages I did about... uh, having your quiet time. And at that time, I'm, to me, this was a moment you had to do in order for God to love you and not send you to hell. Friends, it is the wrong question. I hope it's no surprise to you that the United Methodist Church is undergoing some struggles. And, uh, and we have said goodbye to some dear friends this week. Our reflection on behavior is important, but it is never going to give us answers if it doesn't start with whose we are. If we're not turning and asking questions about the very nature and character of God, any conversation is going to leave us lacking. And we're going to find ourselves like the churches in Rome, fighting and fighting and fighting. And Friends, I'm tired of fighting. We could spend the rest of our lives mining the depths of the God who was faithful to Abraham and the God who took on flesh in Jesus and is faithful to us today, amen? Friends, as we go through this series, let's ask the right questions. Let's seek to know the God who makes us righteous, and let's set aside our desire to make ourselves righteous. And then, shocker of all shockers, God will sanctify us, and our behaviors will be in line with the God whom we love and worship. Amen? Sermon number two was getting ready to start, but I think we're going to. I don't even know what time it is. We're going to stop there. Sometimes I get going, and sermon number two is probably going to have been better than sermon number one. We'll save it. Friends, let's ask the right questions, and let's serve the God who declared Abraham righteous, the God who took on flesh in Jesus and who meets us from this very moment, okay? Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we give thanks that you are gracious and that you are loving that uh, there is nothing we ever could do to earn your love, and there's nothing we could do to be declared righteous. We give thanks that uh, you pour out your grace so that our lives may be transformed and that we may reflect your love, but that it starts with your faithfulness before our faithfulness ever comes into play. Lord, as we come to your table, would you lavish us with your grace? Would you help us uh, find ongoing good questions and and help us wrestle uh, with the answers and what it means to live together in that. Lord, meet us in this moment. We'll pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.